0: So I am uh, uh, David Hempton, Dean of the uh, Divinity School. Um, So welcome, everyone, uh, to the Religions and the Practice of Peace Colloquium, our first event uh, of this year. Tonight's session is doubly special. It's our first RPP colloquium session in our bicentennial year in the Divinity School, um, uh, during which we're dedicating this series to, quote, envisioning strategies for sustainable peace exploring religious contributions. And we're delighted to be hosting tonight's session in collaboration with the Pluralism Project in honor of its 25th anniversary as part of its Pluralism Project at 25 Conference. As you all know, the Pluralism Project has contributed enormously to our understanding of the new religious landscape in the United States. In her role as founder and director of the project, my friend and colleague right here, Dana Eck, will be our moderator tonight. She has expanded the thinking of academics, policymakers, the general public, and religious communities themselves on issues of interreligious diversity critical in our times. The Pluralism Project's research, including its work to map America's interfaith infrastructure, is an important resource and has been an important resource for our work in RPP. Dana has been a wonderful supporter of that. So, so we founded the RPP initiative here at the Divinity School uh, shortly after I became Dean to promote cross-disciplinary engagement, scholarship and practice at Harvard University and beyond, exploring how individuals and communities here in the US and around the globe have drawn on religious and spiritual resources to foster justice, harmony and cooperation across differences and how such efforts can inform contemporary conflict transformation, peace building and leadership, a question vital for our world and our futures. We're fortunate to be joined in this enterprise by talented colleagues and students from schools and programs across Harvard University, many of whom are here with us tonight. So I'd like to start off by expressing our thanks to Dana Eck and her colleagues at the Pluralism Project, to our guest speakers, uh, Saipreet Singh and J. Mayor Kaur. Um, to actors, Benjamin Goodman, Sydney Grant, Monica Giordino, who will be treating us to a performance uh, during our uh, evening tonight. I'd like to express thanks to the El uh, uh, Foundation for its generous support of this year's RPP Colloquium Series, um, who's president, Farhan Latif is attending uh, the events around the Pluralism Project Conference. And finally, um, uh, to thank Reverend Karen Vickers-Budney and, and, and Al Budney for their generous support of the RPP initiative, which uh, has allowed us to um, uh, keep these events going. I'd also like to thank all of you joining us tonight, including the RPP Working Group, and those who have travelled from out of town to be with us. And as always, to our hard-working RPP team and volunteers, who worked so hard to put these events on. So tonight's session is titled, Speaking the Sikh Experience, Visible Difference in the Crucible of Change. We're especially appreciative of this opportunity to gain a glimpse into the challenges and spiritual resources of the Sikh community as the community and its venerable traditions remain. As will be clear from tonight's presentation, too little understood by many of us. We're fortunate to be hearing from members of the community who've been dedicating their creative and artistic talents to bringing knowledge of the Sikh experience to the American and global publics in important ways. If this is your first time joining us for the RPP Colloquium, this monthly dinner series convenes a cross-disciplinary working group of faculty, fellows, alums, and graduate students from across Harvard schools and um, from uh, universities in the greater Boston area. These sessions also double as a class meeting for the graduate students in the working group who are enrolled in a parallel course. The graduate students prepare for each session by reading materials assigned by the guest speakers. And after the speakers' presentations, they launch a brief period of conversation between the speakers and the working group before the Q&A with the general audience. The working group is seated in the center section to facilitate this classroom-style conversation. So we hope that um, all of you attending will stay on to mix and make connections during the reception in the lobby after the session. There'll be time for refreshments. So now I'd like to introduce our moderator for tonight, uh, Diana Eck. I have a grand two-page uh, uh, bio, which I'm not going to read. <laughs> um, uh, Dana has been embarrassed many times today already, but it's been wonderful to see just a genuine outpouring of affection and... Um, Acknowledgement of life-transforming experiences, actually, for many people here. And that's a lot more important than even the many books and honors that you've uh, received. So I know this has been a special day for you. So thank you for moderating our session, and over to you.
1: wonderful to be here both as uh, part of RPP and as part of the Pluralism Project. And if any of you uh, here would like a program for the rest of our uh, conference, it really only convenes again tomorrow morning with a special panel on Islamophobia in the era of interfaith. So tonight, the Sikh community. And uh I'm going to just do a two-minute history of the Sikh community in the United States. In the 19-teens, some of the first immigration to the US, uh, first Canada, then Northwest, uh, Washington, Oregon, California, the farming communities of the Central Valley uh, and other parts of California. Uh, 1913, the first Sikh Gurdwara, called the Sikh Temple, in in um, Stockton, California. And uh, 1923, Bhagat Singh Thind, uh, the first Sikh to serve in the US Army during World War I as a a Sikh married to an American citizen. 1923, he was stripped of his citizenship by the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, 1950s, uh, then uh, Dalip Singh Sound, the first Congressman elected from the Sikh community. Oh, let's see, fast forward 1965, the Immigration and Nationalities Act that brought many people from all over the world, but including uh, Sikhs from India, to the United States. Um, 1980s, the crisis in the Punjab, uh, the Operation Blue Star and many other trigger words that are important to that period. 1984, the Delhi Massacre, that will be a frame for our presentation uh, of Kultar's Mime tonight. Uh, 2001, 9-11, uh, in the wake of which some of the first victims, uh, fatalities, were of uh, six who were beaten up in Queens, and uh, Bill Singh Sodi, the first uh, person who was killed directly as a result of that, in Mesa, Arizona on the 15th of September of that year as he was planting flowers around his uh, gas station in Mesa. Let's see, 2001 also, the genesis almost immediately after 9-11 of the Sikh coalition and Harpreet Singh who is uh, here with us and has been this afternoon, one of those who gathered in New York to frame that coalition of Sikh lawyers and others standing up for Sikh civil rights in that time. Not too long after that, the reframing of a previously existing Sikh uh, organization into the Sikh American Legal Defense and Education Fund, or SALDEF. Uh, Let's see, 2012 in August, uh, the uh, shootings at the Oak Creek Sikh Temple in in Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin, On a Sunday morning as the Sikhs were gathering for worship and uh, langar, uh, a white supremacist, came into the peace of the Sikh temple and uh, opened fire and shot uh, and killed five people. And shortly thereafter, there were uh, many inquiries in the United States about who the Sikhs are. in fact, in Trinity Church in downtown Boston, the church was absolutely filled to capacity, and it's a huge church cathedral with uh, people from all the faith communities of Boston uh, wearing the scarf on their head and uh, having an opportunity to uh, think about the sick community, many of them for the first time. Um, in the wake of the Oak Creek shootings, there was a remarkable organization that formed in Milwaukee called Serve to Unite with a two in the middle of that. Of that. And that was formed by a young man, Pardeep uh, Kaleka, who was the son of Satwan Singh Kaleka, the president of that temple who was shot and killed that morning. And he was a former police officer in Milwaukee and then left that to become a, a school teacher. And along with Pardeep Kaleka, Arno Michaelis, who was a, formerly the head of the largest skinhead organization in that part of the world, a white supremacist racial holy war organization, which he had then left behind. And Arno and Pardeep became a team and they developed, served to unite this extraordinary organization that brought education in mediation and the encounter of otherness to schoolchildren in uh, Milwaukee. And Serve to Unite has become a major uh, uh, sort of light post of the way in which the aftermath of a tragedy can become a very, very important Moment in the transformation of a community. Many things have happened, uh, among them within a month, the very first hearings in the United States Senate uh, about the Sikh community in the U.S. So now what we're going to do is hear from one of our colleagues and a graduate of Harvard Divinity School, uh, Valerie Korr, who has made several films the first of which is uh, about an hour-long film called Divided We Fall, in which immediately in the wake of 9-11, she and her young cousin took off in an automobile and traveled around the U.S. to see what was happening to six in the community. And later on, she has continued in this mission and has made a short film uh, about the Oak Creek tragedy as well. So I'm going to play that. Uh, uh, sort of address from Valerie, who hoped to be here tonight, but is not able to be here. And then uh, we will uh, see the short. It's only an eight minute film.
2: Good evening, everyone. My name is Valerie Kaur, and it is my tremendous honor to congratulate the Pluralism Project on 25 years. I wish I could be with you in person tonight because Harvard Divinity School is my home. You all are my family and Professor Eck was my advisor at a time when I was establishing the foundation for the work that I do today. I am indebted to you, Professor Eck, as I am indebted to the Pluralism Project for the immense contribution you have made to our generation and how we understand interfaith and religious life in America. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm not with you tonight because, like many of you, I have been struggling with the incredible escalation of hate and vitriol in our political climate, in our nation, this election season. And in the last week, it it has showed up as fatigue in my body, and I I needed to take these few days to recover so that I could sprint to election day with the organizing that we're all uh, invested in. So I, I thank you for letting me share my remarks with you over video. The year of enormous rage. That's what the Southern Poverty Law Center has called this last year. The, the year of enormous rage. For the first time in five years, we have seen hate groups increase in the United States by 14%. We have seen hate crimes, reports of hate crimes, increase by threefold against Sikh and Muslim Americans this election season. And we know that Sikh and Muslim Americans are five times more likely to be targets of hate crimes than before 9-11. So what does that look like? It looks like kids bullied at schools during recess. It looks like Sikh and Muslim Americans being stopped two, three times at airports. It looks like racial slurs on city streets. It looks like hate violence, the beating of bodies, the breaking of bone. I am um, incredibly saddened to report that after 15 years of activism I became an activist like many of us in the Sikh and Muslim American communities in the aftermath of September 11, So after 15 years of activism, our communities actually feel less safe than we did even in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. Because today, we live in a climate where political leaders can say the unthinkable, can denigrate Muslims, Sikhs, immigrants, women, refugees, in ways that were unthinkable before. The year of enormous rage. That is the, the moment that we're, we're living in. And that's precisely why I believe that the call of our times is revolutionary love. I believe that love is in the zeitgeist. We heard Cory Booker talk about love on the stage of the DNC when he called our nation to be a nation not of tolerance but of love. We heard William Barber, Rev. Barber, on the stage of the DNC saying that we need to shock our hearts to love again. We heard Hillary Clinton talk about love trumping hate. We see love in the zeitgeist. I think we see love in the zeitgeist because people are reaching for language to respond to the extreme hate in our political landscape. They're reaching for language that is just as powerful, just as potent as the hate that we are seeing. The last time that we saw love in national discourse take center stage was during the civil rights era, when we had leaders, faith leaders like Dr. King, front and center. The language of love has been relegated to the sidelines since then, but we see it We see it returning this election year, and I believe this is not just a trend. I believe the call of our times is revolutionary love. Love beyond our tribe. So to be able to look upon the faces of people who do not look like us and say, Sister, Brother, I cannot live if you are dying. I cannot stand by if you are suffering. But this means also being able to look upon the faces of others who have disagreed with us, or who even hurt us who even have taken everything away from us. On the 15-year anniversary of 9-11, can we look upon the faces of the 19 hijackers and say, brothers, yes, brothers, you, you were lost. You did what you did out of a lack of love, material, economic, spiritual, political. Can we look upon the faces of perpetrators of hate violence Frank Roque, who murdered Bobir Singh Sodhi, an uncle, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. Wade Michael Page, the white supremacist who walked into a sick Gurdwara in Oak Creek, Wisconsin in 2012 in a horrific mass shooting. Can we look upon their faces and say, Brothers, you were lost. You did what you did out of a lack of love. The atrocities you committed we will never forget because forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness, I believe, is freedom from hate and this is the one thing that gives me hope. This evening you're going to be talking about the Sikh community and our struggles since 9-11. I believe that we have moved from a position of victimhood to a position of agency because we now have tools in the palm of our hands. We have Facebook and YouTube and Twitter. We have blogs and videos and essays. We have the ability to tell our stories today in ways that we didn't even in the aftermath of 9-11. And we are using these tools to show the country how we respond to hate. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is freedom from hate. So we're seeing sick Americans, in the wake of the most atrocious hate crimes, stand before the cameras, pick up their phones, and share a message of Jarvikla. The sick spirit of Jarvikla is relentless optimism, ever-rising high spirits, revolutionary love, even in the face of violence, even in the face of darkness and despair. That is the sick message. That is how we are starting to tell our own story and how we're starting to assert our agency as fellow Americans. And it's working. It's working. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is freedom from hate because once we are free from hate for the perpetrators then we release the kind of creative energy we need to go after the root conditions that cause terrorism and hate violence. Forgiveness is not the absence of justice. Forgiveness is the starting point for justice. This is what it means as a Sikh to walk the path of love here in America in the year 2016. What you are about to see is a story in the course of nine minutes that shows how Sikh Americans are responding to hate, to violence with this message of Jardikala. Not just a message in speech, but a message that we're actually walking through action, through social and political action. In Oak Creek, Wisconsin, the mass shooting that took place there in 2012, it was the largest hate-based mass shooting in recent U.S. history, up until Charleston, which followed on its heels. People remember Newtown, people remember Charleston, people remember Orlando. But Oak Creek happened first, and the, the story of Oak Creek, I think, has something remarkable and important to offer the American public. The story of Oak Creek is about how a faith community, a Sikh community, that has always been, for so many years, a a community that has not had power, had not had the ability to tell our own stories, 2012 was the very first time we saw that change. Because we had these tools, because we had built infrastructures and organizations like the Sikh Coalition and Saldef, because we had made relationships with people in the government and media, long after the media trucks left in the aftermath of that tragedy, we could continue to organize, to continue to tell our story. And it led to landmark civil rights victory. It led to us asking the US government to change federal hate crimes policy. Because of the massacre in Oak Creek and the way that the Sikh community and our interfaith allies responded, we were able to convince President Obama and the US government to start tracking hate crimes against Sikhs against Hindus, against Arabs, and against other minorities. Because how can we solve a problem that we're not even measuring? It's not going to prevent another Oak Creek. It's not going to prevent another atrocity rooted in hate. And this election season, all of us are bracing. We are hoping and praying and we are working so hard to prevent another act of violence on that scale. But it is a first step. And the way that I return to Jardikala, relentless optimism and hope, is because of the steps that we're taking together. So I I hope you enjoy seeing this on the screen in the course of nine minutes. Right now my team and I are working on a feature-length film called The Oak Creek Massacre, A Love Story, because it really is about the revolutionary power of love. Right now we're based at the University of Southern California with the Revolutionary Love Project, a project that aims to make love a public ethic in American life this election season and beyond. I invite you to check us out at RevolutionaryLove.net. I hope you enjoy the film, and special love to the cast of Kultar's Mine. I am so excited about how you are representing the next generation of Sikh activism through art and innovation. Thank you so much, and enjoy the night. Yes,
3: Milwaukee Sheriff. Hello, can I help you? Welcome calling from 7512 South, South Avenue. There is shooting. Okay. There is shooting in this. Okay. Did anybody uh, get hit, nah, sir? Did anybody get hit? Ma'am? Sir? Shooting, May I, sir. Did, Keep shooting Sir? Big shooting. Sir, I understand it. Did anybody get hit? Hello? <laughs>
4: And I remember her trying to wake us up, probably around nine, you know, and,
0: and none of us, none of us woke up, just like any other day.
5: You know, with my grandpa, it was just a normal day. So we just thought it was just another day.
6: Yeah.
5: I was dropping my wife and my son off.
6: In kitchen room baby room, was baby room. Crackers Crackers
2: were going to be. We were thinking, we were thinking then, I thought, Ji, what happened to
5: me? a in the have My brother was driving, I was driving, and then my brother called me and it was like, somebody opened fire at the Dudwara. Papa has been shot. He's like, there was a shooting. And we're like, OK, you know, where's Grandpa? Starting to get phone calls from other people, saying that you know your dad's been shot, there's been shooting
4: inside. We hear your mom. Your mom's inside. She's in
7: the closet. And
3: then I called my mom right away. She's like, I'm safe. I'm in the pantry.
7: तो इसके पापा जो थे इन बच्चों के पास आए खड़े रहे बच्चे मेरी बेटी
8: रोती रही बहुत पापा पापा मम्मी पापा को ना कुछ हो जाए बहुत रोती रही
4: I called her and she didn't answer her phone.
5: Where is he? Where is he? I was like, I don't know. We're calling everybody, like every nobody's getting through. Everybody, it's like chaos. A call from the police chief. We have an officer that shot. We're
9: on scene. Uh, don't know a lot of the details yet, but we know there's shooting. I
4: actually took off in my car.
9: Weed
5: Hightail it over there.
6: They had the whole area blocked, so I couldn't get anywhere. Uh, Aa police na, the police. se, police. Unhone kaha ki hands up karke bahar niklo.
7: Haan, no, eh pata lag rea, vi, bande mar si chalo uh, andar basement sare
10: Papa ko dekha, us time unki pe puri goli lag rakhi thi. ki Ki The the
4: We came back around 9 o'clock and uh, they called us into the room. The moment they told me, the
1: moment, I realized I'll never see her again. Not a day goes by when I don't think about that day and still get goosebumps thinking about it.
3: A man entered the Sikh temple in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. There were about three dozen people there. Six people were murdered, plus the gunman himself being killed. The gunman shot Lieutenant Murphy, too, at least eight times at close range. An incident of domestic terrorism.
4: Sita Singh, 41 years old, male. Ranjit Singh, 49 years old, male. Satwant Singh Kaleka, 62 years old, male. Prakash Singh, male, 39 years old. Paramjit Kaur, 41 years old, female. Shubaik Singh Katara, 84 years old, male.
3: President Obama today ordered all flags in the United States to fly at half-staff.
9: All of us are heartbroken and by what's happened. And I offered uh, the thoughts and prayers not only of myself and Michelle, but also of the country as a whole. In this country, uh, regardless of what we look like, where we come from, uh, who we
6: worship, uh, we are all one people. And we look after one another, and we respect one another.
3: Wahey Guru,
0: Wahey
3: Guru, Wahey Guru
9: let this tragic event define our city. We're not gonna let that happen. We're gonna take every measure and every step to make sure that it does it. Let people see the letters of support. These are letters from all over the world, all over the United States, some local residents. Offers of help, there's offers of money. Here's a letter from the White House, from the president. It is overwhelming. They, they continue to come in every day. drive out hatred.
4: Only love can do that. Some members of the Sikh community all over the world, I've gotten emails from They're raising money, they're doing fundraisers for him. Thanks and praise, it's it's just me.
9: I want to be a law enforcement
0: officer like Lieutenant Brian Murphy, who saved so many lives that day. We ache for our loved ones. We have lost so much. But I want people to know that our heads are held high. My mother was a devout Sikh. Like all Sikhs, she was born to live in Chordikala, a state of high spirit and optimism. I want to protect other peoples from what happened to my mother. I want to combat hate, not just against Sikhs, but against all people. I don't want anyone to suffer what we have suffered. I want to build a world
4: where all people can live, work, and worship in America in peace. Despite everything, I still believe in American dream. In my mother's memory, I ask that you stand up for that dream. Today, and in the days to come.
1: wonderful message from Valerie Kaur. I'm sorry she couldn't be here in person, but she kind of was here, larger than life. And um, then the film that she made in in Oak Creek, one of a couple of films that she has made. And um, now I'd like to go to the other part of our program so briefly and introduce uh, first uh, Sarpreet Singh, and uh, his daughter, Meher Kaur, and uh, sarpreet is going to introduce the next part of the program. Sarpreet Singh is someone we met um, as part of the Sikh community here in Boston. And he is a playwright, a commentator, and a poet, and he's been writing while at the same time pursuing a career in technology and uh, heading up uh, some of the aspects of a rather large Sikh community. I don't know if you're a part of the building project as well, but everybody seems to be. He's the founder also and director of Gurmat Sangeet Project, which is dedicated to the preservation of traditional Sikh music. And there are many in the Gurdwara that uh, are attracted to this, young people especially, uh, who are learning the forms of Sikh music as a lifelong Methodist. I can tell you that the six are a a very near companion to our tradition because when you go to their community for uh, a a service, you might call it, it's mostly singing, and that's a wonderful thing. It's a lot of hymns, and uh, Sarpreet has been very active in Boston interfaith service uh, circles as well, and recognized for his work by the Boston Globe He also writes a column for a popular uh, culture magazine called Sick Chick, and we'll have to look that up. (laughs) And his daughter, Meher Kaur, will join us a a little bit later as we talk about the presentation tonight. She's a graduate uh, in 2016 of Smith College in theater and is specializing in uh, being a director. And she has directed quite a number of things, including seven a documentary play presented as part of Hillary Clinton's 2014 Women in Public Service Institute. She has attended the National Theater Institute at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center, where she directed a 38-member ensemble in a devised multimedia musical, inspired by hashtag uh, Black Lives Matter. And she recently concluded a directing internship at the Williamstown Theater Festival. So I think we can expect to see more of Meher Kaur's uh, productions in the future. And now, without further ado, I would like to introduce Sarpreet, Kaur, uh, Sarpreet Singh, who is the um, author of the dramatic performance that we will see tonight uh, called Kultar's Mime. We'll see just a few uh, sections of that, but it was a, a play that premiered uh, over two years ago in the theater at Cabot House at Harvard. And Dorothy and I were there, and met maybe some others who were in this audience. And um, since then, has had 71 performances in the United States, in India, in Canada, and certainly uh, will continue to have a long life. So Sarbpreet, would you uh, give us some words of introduction to Kultar's Mime?
11: Thank you, Dr. Eck, for that very warm and, I'll say, very generous introduction. Uh, Since uh, embarrassing you seems to be an important part of the agenda today, (laughs) I would be remiss if I didn't contribute. Uh, You alluded to our first performance here at Harvard two years ago, which, of course, uh, I will never forget. Uh, one of the things that happened in the performance, uh, after the performance, was a couple of undergraduates uh, spontaneously decided that we should have a talk back. And he said, fine, let's have a talk back. And they got up and they started asking several questions. If me, Meher Kaur was not present, I think, at the performance and the cast. And uh, what followed was a wonderful discussion Uh, which was of course tremendously enhanced by the observations that Dr. Eck made. And I will say that from that day on, the talkback became a regular feature of her journey and in fact has emerged as a component which is as compelling as the work itself. So as a token of our gratitude to Dr. Eck for her inspiration and encouragement, uh, we just wanted to start by offering her a small token, a signed copy of Kultars Mime, which I was I asked you
1: to sign the Pluralism Project copy, but thank uh, you. Yours is signed. Thank you. Thank you.
11: Thank you. <laughs> so I will speak very briefly about uh, Kultars Mime, largely to create a little bit of context. And we'll save um, everything else for the discussion that's going to follow the excerpt that you will see from the play. At its most basic level, Kultar's Mime is about a horrible instance of sectarian violence that occurred in India 32 years ago. Almost as terrible as the act of violence itself in which more than 3,000 people were butchered over a course of three days in the capital of the largest democracy in the world. Almost as bad as the violence was the manner in which the incident was treated subsequently for exactly 30 years. It was described as a riot. And this insidious game of semantics didn't end until two years ago when finally the home minister of India, the second most important uh, leader in the country, went to the place in Delhi where a lot of the survivors are settled and for the first time in 30 years acknowledged that what had happened in Delhi 30 years ago was not a riot, but it was genocide. The play tells the story of four young children who survived the massacre, and we'll talk about this a little more in detail, but two of these stories are actually based uh, in fact on a research paper written by a Delhi anthropologist So the play is about the 1984 massacre at one level, but in fact it is about much more than that. It is an unequivocal condemnation of genocide and sectarian violence to be sure, but it is also an affirmation of the power of empathy and love, especially when we have the ability to embrace the pain of the quote, other. And how does kultar's Mime do it? So, Meher Kaur developed Kultar's Mime from a poem that I had written more than 25 years ago, after I came to this country as a young man. And about three years ago, she turned it into a play, which was the first instance of what you're going to see an excerpt from today. Subsequently, somewhat serendipitously, we stumbled upon an extremely well-known poem called In the City of Slaughter, written by Chaim Bialik, who was at that time a young student in Odessa who was sent to Kishinev, uh, then in the Russian province of Bessarabia, to investigate a massacre of the Jews that had occurred, the well-known Kishinev pogrom. In his his poem, Bialik, using searing imagery, talks about the aftermath of Kishinev. And we were really struck by the similarity between uh, Bialik's poem. Of course, Bialik is a very well-known poet, and uh, I certainly am not. Uh, so it was, uh, perhaps, somewhat conceited of us to uh, use Bialik's poem to really bookend the text of Kultar's mind that came mostly from the original poem. And the artistic conceit that Meherkor developed to present, essentially, what was a poem as a stage play was to set it in an art gallery. So there's this group of young Jewish artists who decide that they want to commemorate uh, the Kishinev pogrom and honor the people who perished and were targeted. And in a very powerful moment, they stumble upon a report, a human rights report that talks about what happened to the Sikhs in Delhi. And in a moment of insight, they decide that they would like to honor the victims of Kishinev by turning the spotlight on the victims of Delhi. And then they create this original artwork, and you see reproductions of the artwork as the backdrop, and set up an art exhibition in which they tell the stories of the young children of Delhi who survived the massacre. So not to belabor this aspect of the work, But wherever we have gone through our 71 performances in six countries, without exception, the audience always picks up on the fact that first of all, this play essentially strings together the stories of Kishinev and Delhi. And then the notion of a group of non-South Asian and non-Sikh actors presenting the pain of the children of Delhi the pain that has largely been subdued and denied for decades, it sends a really powerful message. And the message, you know, synthesized really is that if we can embrace each other's pain, then we perhaps take the first step towards preventing things like these from happening over and over again. And eventually, even after we engage with very, very difficult subjects, we get to a point of hope. With that introduction, I'm going to invite the actors to present a couple of very short scenes from the play Kultar's Mime. Thank you.
4: A crowd of men with blood in their eyes, with sticks and swinging clubs do smash, waste everything that in their path lies. Well, not if he's awake or dreams. He opens his mouth and screams, and s- sc- What a blessing, his silent vocal cords that hide him from the flashing swords. They take his father by his long hair, beat and kick him as they drag him out. Hurl filthy abuse, revenge they shout. Kultar. Neighbors, dazed, just stand and stare. Kultar. His father fights, tries to break free as they drag him to the banyan tree.
5: Kultar. Once more he
4: sees the hangman's noose. It slipped around his father's neck. Kultar. A neighbor at the ringleader's back takes his father's dusty shoes. Kultar. The rope is tossed up into a tree. A mighty heave and his feet are free. Kultar. Death doesn't come easy to the old man. He twists what? and twitches. His body oh. shakes. The ones yank as hard as they can. They hear a loud snap. KULTAR! His neck breaks.
10: Coltar rides, too, on the dirty floor. Souls in a noose he can't take more.
11: His mind's a wild animal in a cage. His little body has become a
4: stage.
10: Each and every day, the drama of death is staged here for the world to see. Come one, come all, it's all for free. Do not stop now to catch your breath, for it's not over by far, there's more. So many tales, it's hard to keep score.
5: Uh,
10: Yells uh, and chants are heard from afar, uh, mingled with the painful, agonized screams as the uh, pogrom continues in Tilak uh, brutality beyond our wildest dreams. Uh,
3: breath and gasps, Uh, eyes reflect her fears, uh, down her cheeks stream desperate tears. uh, Four times already the mob has come, can't shut out uh, its ugly, sinister hum. uh,
10: Four times her father and brothers uh, too rushed, brandishing their shining swords. uh, Four times repulsed the angry uh, hordes, but then more came uh, and the mob grew. To hope for mercy they cannot dare. Their eyes are shut in silent prayer. Even louder now is the terrible hum. Once again they pick up their swords. An urgent beat sounds on death's drum, the river of reason the mob now forge, launches its final murderous attack. Each man to the wall now has his back. They try to protect the ones they love. What courage, what valor, but God above. Even he looks away or has shut his eyes. There are just too many. They do prevail to pieces, is hacked each and every male. The women mute, shocked, cower like mice, their peril so urgent, acute and so
3: real, of satanic laughter they can hear appeal. She's never been so afraid in her life. She's too innocent to comprehend as they come to her waving stick and knife. She thinks they'll kill her. This is the end. Sweet
4: Rana. Don't bother to hold your breath. Pray harder yet, but for the boon of death. Don't fear the knife. Embrace it, you must. It's all that lies between you and their lust. You're young, and you cannot even think. These are not men, but lust-crazed beasts. Tonight, you're one of their carnal feasts. There are depths where they've yet to sink. They circle around like
3: beasts of prey. Her beautiful face is pallid, ashen, gray. All she can see is a huge circle of hands, fingers that flex, squirm and lecherous glee, big hands, small hands, dark hands, pale hands on all of them, spots of blood. She can see the lascivious hands and their lewd dance. Realization comes to her in a single glance. She begins to tremble and frightfully shake as a firm hold on her body the hands take. Her body is lifted up high in the air by the hands and carried to the next room. Oh, desperate day of pain, death, and doom. She struggles, kicks, weeps, tears at her hair. The hands get to work to do the cruel deed. Her innocent body shrinks in utter disgust. The maddened hands pick up terrible speed to maul the object of their bestial lust. Fearsome, feeding frenzy, without a stitch, they tear into shreds, each and every stitch. She feels a most violent, searing pain. And again, and again, and again. And again. By ravenous mouths the hands are joined. They bite and spit out her flesh and blood. Young, innocent body, pure and tender bud, violated, wasted, her honor,
5: purloined, her
3: sated, spent. The beast about her jewel of raw and bubbling flesh her body a pool
1: A bit of conversation um, between Meher and Sarpreet, and then eventually uh, questions and thoughts from the rest of you. Uh, Meher, maybe you would like to begin with a comment on sure. the. I mean, this is a production of some genius, of which we have seen just a small bit, but
6: tell us. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, I apologize, my voice is a little out of commission today, but I'll try. Um, So just a little about, uh, as, as a way of background, I suppose, I can tell you a little bit about my connection to the story in particular, and what inspired me to create this piece and take it from a poem and stage it for an audience to engage with. So growing up, I knew a lot about 1984, and at the same time, I really didn't at all. And the reason I knew about it was because I grew up in a very vibrant Sikh community here in Massachusetts. I went to Gurdwara every twice a week for my whole life in Milford and was surrounded by lots of great community. Um, and part of that included going to Sunday school, it included going to retreats and camps, and part of those uh, activities entailed learning about 1984 because it was a really important part of the conversation. And it was really important for uh, the leaders and the mentors that I had to pass on that story because my generation wasn't alive. It happened in four, 1984 um, and I'm 22 years old. And so I didn't have any direct connection to the event. So. On a very practical level, I knew the story. I knew about Operation Blue Star. I knew about the statistics and the facts of what happened in 1984. But at the same time, I didn't really know that much because I wasn't alive, and I didn't have any sort of personal connection by way of being there or having a a personal story connected to it. And so I watched these very emotional mentors uh, and camp counselors and teachers talking to us about 1984 and it seemed like something really important to me, but it felt like I was disconnected from it. And part of these uh, lessons and, and classes and conversations about 1984, about my community, my people being massacred had to do with, well, nothing's really been done about this so far, so how are you gonna help? And you can imagine it's really difficult to come up with an answer to such a big question when you feel like you don't have any direct sort of personal connection to it. And I felt weird about that, and I felt like it needed to change. And so I had this at the back of my mind. And uh, as I started college, I started doing more theater. I learned about uh, theater for political change and how effective it can be. Um, I saw an Anna Devere Smith poster out here, and she does a lot of political theater. So I began to learn that theater can be used to tell stories that aren't heard, um, and it can be used to engage audiences in a way that's really, really unique, that even film can't do. Watching people in front of you, having an experience in real time, in front of your very eyes, to me, is just about the closest you can get to having that experience yourself, and it's really emotional, and it's really eye-opening and it's really good for telling a story so as i was looking at ways of using this newfound uh, approach to to storytelling and using theater as my medium i remember this poem that my dad had written in the 90s and that he had read at multiple 1984 remembrances uh, and I, I think actually at one point, we even tried to stage a little bit of it, which was really interesting thinking back because I was really young and, and didn't truly understand what was going on um, in, in this poem. But I remembered that it was very uh, visual. The language created lots of pictures. And I thought it would be really interesting to take those pictures and put them on their feet and create living, versions of those pictures and so I took the poem and I uh, Broke it down and I created a play just really as an experiment like with my friends who were willing to be a part of the the procedure Uh, And we put it up and for me It was a really interesting experience because all of a sudden I had gone from having kind of a peripheral Understanding of 1984, like a, a version that was just on a piece of paper that I could read but not truly understand. All of a sudden, I was exploring the story with a group of real people and diving into uh, the the emotional impact it can have, genocide can have, and learning about the stories of children and the way that they respond to violence um, and really, really was able to understand as best I could on my own through research and and through working on the show uh, and, and through thinking about how these people might be feeling and how they might be expressing themselves. All of a sudden, I was able to create more of an emotional understanding of 1984, which felt really important for me as a young Sikh living in America who was born after 1984. So that was kind of the the inspiration for creating the piece, I think. And another thing that's uh, really really interesting for me is that the way that we've sort of developed the play is it's about these people who also don't really have a direct connection to 1984. They're from the US as well, they're Jewish, Um, and they, explore this other genocide and learn so much and for me after exploring 1984 and really diving in and learning about it i'm so interested now not just about 1984 but to learn about genocide in general and ethnic cleansing and realize that it's not over yet and it's still happening and it really opened my mind Um, and it made me feel like theater in particular could be used to continue telling these very important stories in a way that can impact audiences and engage them in real time. Sure.
11: So I'll uh, try to provide a sense of uh, how I came to Gultar's Mime. Uh, I was in India. I was uh, an undergraduate student at that time uh, in an adjoining province. So I was somewhat removed from the events in Delhi. Uh, there were some disturbances on my campus. I remember my friends had to lock me into somebody else's room for a couple of days because there were mobs that were roaming our campus looking for Sikh students, but really nothing of the magnitude of what happened in telly happened in my sleepy little campus town. The other thing to remember is that this was the pre-internet age, and in India, of course, uh, media was tightly controlled by the government. There was only the official government radio channels and the one official government television channel, and a lot of the newspapers were either censored, or they were self-censored. Uh, they, uh, all of them enthusiastically supported the official view, or the official spin, that what had occurred in Delhi was a riot. So, most people in India knew that something terrible had happened in Delhi. Uh, most of them believed that it was a spontaneous riot where people got upset at the fact that the, prime, the beloved prime minister was assassinated by two Sikhs, so they spontaneously set upon the Sikhs and massacred them. Uh, nobody felt that this was the right thing. I mean, nobody supported this, but there were a lot of people who believed that the Sikhs kind of asked for it. How can I say that with such confidence? Well, <laughs> I was a young Sikh man and so pervasive was the official propaganda that I felt that the Sikhs kind of asked for it as well. And the the political background is way too complicated to get into in this conversation, suffice it to say that the Sikhs had been at odds with the Indian government for almost a decade. Some of that confrontation had turned violent. And in media, Sikhs were cast, essentially, as troublemakers and terrorists. And everybody believed that, myself included. Fast forward a couple of years, I I come to the US to go to grad school. Um, I'm not studying the humanities. I'm studying computer science. But one day, I wander into my library and out of some strange impulse, start looking for newspaper articles about 1984. And I am absolutely shocked by what I read in Western newspaper articles as opposed to what I had read in India. And I'm a pretty skeptical kind of person. So I read it and I thought to myself, no, this is not possible. And then I started searching and I started finding things. One of them was this report by an Indian civil rights organization called the People's Union for Civil Liberties. Uh, under the aegis of one of the most respected, retired judges in India, which had independently investigated what had happened in Delhi, and issued a report which fearlessly said that this was an organized massacre, organized by the sitting government of the prime minister who had been killed. They named names, including three ministers who are portrayed in that rather dark (laughs) painting that you see behind you. Details. Who were the perpetrators? Who paid the mobs? Everything was in that report. I was shocked. And then I found another article written by an intrepid Indian feminist journalist called Madhu Kishwar, who published a progressive magazine called Manushi. In an article titled Gangster Rule, she essentially wrote things that corroborated this report 100%. Now, all of a sudden, I had two pieces of evidence from sources that seemed unimpeachable, that had nothing to do with the Sikh community, which were saying that what had happened was not a riot, but it was a massacre. So I was a young man, naturally, that created a tremendous amount of turmoil in my heart. Right around then, I stumbled upon an academic paper called Voices of Children, written by Johns Hopkins anthropologist Dr. Veena Das, who was then in Delhi. Dr. Das had studied the children who had survived 1984, who were all settled in a dingy, terrible, the only word to describe it, a slum in Delhi. She went there, observed the children, and documented their stories. One of the stories that she told was of a young deaf-mute boy whose father was lynched before his eyes. And this child obviously couldn't communicate his trauma, being deaf and dumb. The only way he could do it is whenever his PTSD was triggered, he would essentially start acting out what had happened to his father with his body. So the story is true. It's based on a case study that Dr. Das presented. And similarly, there's another story in the play that we didn't present today, which is you know based in fact. So the combination of reading these things, my own struggle with my very tenuous connection to my Sikh identity at that time All of those sort of combined, and what poured out was this poem about 25 years ago. So that was the genesis of Kultar's Vine. I'd like
1: to continue this before I uh, open it to some questions, but with the particular remembrance of having attended that premiere performance uh, in the Cabot House Black Box Theater uh, a couple of years ago, when then you were thinking uh, it would be good to raise some money and see if it could be presented in India. And I thought, oh my gosh, what will happen if this is presented in Delhi um, or you know in other parts of India? And I don't think I really heard what would happen. I, I anticipated there might be something really rather, um, rather violent that this might capitulate there. Uh, how was it to present this before Indian audiences?
11: Uh, I'll be very happy to talk about that. We actually went to India twice, and you know, Meher Kaur accompanied us on the second trip, so I'll ask her to jump in as well. But the first one, you're exactly right. Um, a lot of well-wishers and family members, first of all, thought we were crazy. Said, you want to do what? You want to go back to Delhi 30 years after this happened and... You want to loudly proclaim that this was, of course, everybody knows it's not, it wasn't a riot, but nobody calls it a riot, so there was a lot of trepidation. Right after the Boston performance, we took the play to New Jersey, and a lot of worried audience members came to my cast and said, you guys had better watch out. India is a democracy, yes, of course. But nasty things can happen to people who say things that the government doesn't want to hear, and that is very true. I personally didn't think that we would be in any danger. We were all US citizens, and you know, in this day and age, nothing was gonna happen to us. But I did anticipate that they could shut us down. You know, They could throw us out, because uh, we had not sought, quote, official permission. Uh, even though, as an interesting side note, every time we performed in India, our local sponsoring organization had to submit the script to the censors to get it uh, approved. Uh, I seriously doubt that any of the functionaries in the censorship department read a line of the script because it was passed every time. So, let's go to the first performance in Delhi. You know, I'd put on a very brave front for my actors, but I can tell you that my heart was in my mouth until the last scene. And at that point, we could say, yes, we did it. We came back 30 years later and performed this in the city that denied the massacre. But our experience was hugely positive. I'm sorry if I sounded like a popular figure who's very much in our consciousness right now, but (laughs) you'll forgive me for that. (laughs) So uh, our first two performances in Delhi were for an invited-only audience. Uh, the, The audience consisted of a lot of Delhi intellectuals. A lot of Delhi intellectuals tend to be of the left-leaning variety, so there were plenty of those. Uh, diplomats, the new ambassador, Indian ambassador to the US was in our audience in the first mine performance. Sitting members of parliament, senior military officers, police <laughs> officers, several politicians. So it was um, you know, light who's who of Delhi were said the first two performances. We got tremendous engagement from the audience. We did not do the talkbacks. We figured that the talkbacks would be too much of an in-your-face kind of gesture. So we actually later regretted not doing them, but we didn't do them in the first two performances. Then we performed uh, one more time in Delhi, took the play to Chandigarh, and then performed it in Amritsar. The second time, we went to all the five major metros in India and performed the play in premier theater venues before audiences that consisted of 90% plus non six. And I will tell you this this was one of the most positive experiences of my life, and there's not an inch of exaggeration there. Because I was somewhat shamed, I'll tell you in hindsight, when, I took, when we took the play to the other Indian cities, we thought that we would be faced with objections, people would call us out for getting people wanting to get people excited, raking up old history, a very troubled chapter of Indian history. But I can tell you, that the reaction of audience members in Mumbai, Chennai, Calcutta, Bangalore was not an iota different from the, audience of the, uh, from the Harvard audience that you encountered or all the overwhelmingly sick audiences that we encountered all over North America. So the lesson for me was that our common humanity is alive and well people will connect to these kinds of stories because at the end of the day, uh, I I don't know who observed this, one of our, maybe Dr. Umar Chakravarti, who was our mentor and was instrumental in getting us to India, that at the end of the day, this could be any one story. So hugely positive reaction, reviews in all the major Indian newspapers and uh, complete acceptance of what we were trying to do much to our surprise and hindsight. do you want to
1: say anything further about that?
6: Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, one pretty amazing uh, anecdote, actually. So, like my dad said, we went twice to India, and the second time I was able to go, I had school vacation, um, and we were able to go to Tilak Vihar, where these children, possibly would still be. So the play takes place in Tilak Vihar where uh, many of the victims were housed. Uh, so we, we just went back to see, maybe we'll be able to find thar who the character called Thar is based on, the boy who was deaf and mute. And we, you know, it, it, was, it was scary. And at, at one point we thought, should we perform the play there? And then we thought, absolutely not. You know, This play is not meant to, to open wounds for people who already know what happened in 1984. But we did, we did wanna go there and, and, and see if Aftar was still there and, and possibly uh, Bilu as well. The, you'll see a, little, a picture of the girl, the last photo, um, is also based on a real person. So we went to Tilak Vihar uh, and we spoke with some women there who were probably also very young when this happened. Uh, they spoke to us about their memories and their experiences and it was really difficult because you know, it's, it's not like they forgot. It's not like it's not in the front of their minds at every moment. And then we asked about Afthar, and they said, yes, he still lives here actually. And um, he has a job so he's probably at work. We we're like, oh, we should go to his apartment anyway and see if he's there. And we happened to find his wife there And she went in and texted him and he came and we came we went inside his house and we saw a photo of his father which was really emotional because the imagery surrounding his father is so much of the play and we met his his two young sons Uh, and it was so amazing to see this person who in in my eyes was just like continually going through strife, right? Like in this play, all we know of Guldar is that he's experiencing so much pain and, and that he's haunted. To see this person be resilient and have a job and have a family was—he he, no, he he couldn't speak. He couldn't speak. Uh, he was he he's been deaf and mute. Um. But he had like a sign language with his wife and she explained to him what we were doing, that we were taking a story all over the world. It was just really fascinating to watch him take that in. And he wrote, thanks, on his hand. Thanks, exclamation <laughs> point, and showed us, which was just truly amazing. A really, really phenomenal experience. And it, for, for me, for the cast, it really put the whole thing in a new perspective because the story that was on paper that we we're performing for audiences, of course, it's important. But when you meet someone and see their reaction to to us sharing their story, it was truly, truly amazing. I mean, he would have had no idea that his story was getting told. So our second trip to India was really amazing, for sure. You'd have to tell that story in Hindi there. <laughs> because... Yeah.
1: questions and who wants to go first? Uh, Rafaela or uh, Wasquito or Ben or Rafaela? Yes, good. someone is going to pass the mic to you.
7: Thank you. So thank you for being here. It's absolutely amazing to hear from you. Hold it close. Okay. <laughs> there we go. Um, it's really just great to hear from you. Um, so I am part of the religious, um, Religions and the Practice of Peace class this semester. Um, and in the reading that you assigned to us, um, we were just really struck by how you discussed the incredible violence and the despair that people are feeling and that had ingrained itself in the community there um, in the long run. Um, and y- it, it was just striking, really, how, how you described the, the painfully shy residents of the desolate streets in um even more, t- more than 20 years after, after the fact. Um, but you also discussed the resilience of these people, and that's also something that was just incredibly astounding. So we do have some questions for you. Um, I believe we have two. Um, would you like us to ask them all at once, or one after the other?
3: Take the
7: <laughs> okay. <laughs> then I'm going to hand the mic to um, one of the other members.
9: Hello, so my name is Ben, and I'm in the RPP class. And what I'm interested in is the practice of peace and how religion can be at the foundation of that and can be at the center of a community. So what I'm interested in, because I don't know that much about the Sikh community, is um, what are the spiritual resources, the spiritual tools that, after such a tragedy like this, brought everyone together, was able to reaffirm their identity, and build bridges within the community and outside of the community.
11: So you've asked a complicated question, and uh, we'll we'll try to address it to the best of our abilities. It's important to, I mean, every community has a reservoir of resilience that comes primarily from their faith, and the Sikh community is no exception. Uh, It might be useful for me to very briefly uh, put what happened to the Sikhs in 1984 in the context of the 500-year history of the Sikh faith, because then it becomes much easier to understand the resilience of the Sikhs and how they've dealt with this. So Sikhs have never been strangers to strife. Sikhism as a faith is about 500 years old. Uh, after a period of relative calm, uh, so since you're religion students, I'm sure you have uh, some level of knowledge of the Sikh faith. So the Sikhism was started by 10 gurus. Uh, in, the, in the time of the fifth guru, the Sikhs started attracting the attention of the Mughal rulers in Delhi. And without going into a lot of complex history, the fifth Sikh guru was martyred uh, for very complicated reasons, which I won't get into. The ninth Sikh Guru was also beheaded by the Mughal Emperor in Delhi because he chose to intercede for uh, the Hindus who were being forcibly converted to Islam. And for his pains, he was beheaded by the Emperor. The 10th Guru, his son, who was a child at that time, essentially lost his entire family in a war against the same Emperor. After this period, primarily in the 18th century after the passing of the 10th Guru, uh, Sikhism went through a period of tremendous strife. I mean, in my subjective opinion, the 18th century was really the crucible in which Sikh character was forged. And many times during that century, because Sikhs had this very annoying habit of persistently standing up to oppression, they were targeted again and again And there were two large massacres, which are called the First Great Holocaust and the Second Great Holocaust, in which large fractions of the Sikh community were eliminated and the faith bounced back. So it's important to understand that resilience it has always been a very integral and a necessary part of our identity. Without that resilience, there would have been no Sikhs today, especially at the time of the second great massacre in the mid-18th century. A very large percentage of the Sikh community was decimated. It's important to understand a couple of other characteristics of the Sikhs. So, forgiveness is tremendously, tremendously important in the Sikh faith. Now, to give you a very sort of often cited example, I talked about the beheading of the ninth guru by the emperor in Delhi, and subsequently the battles that claimed the lives of all the four sons of the tenth guru. So the tenth guru believed that he was fighting a righteous battle against a corrupt king. And he fought it with everything that he had. Uh, he very fearlessly confronted the king, tried to show him the error of his ways, and then after he died, the king died, the 10th guru made peace with his son. So, the lesson from this very simple thing that a lot of Sikhs would take, I certainly would take, is that his fight was not against a faith, a dynasty, it was against an individual, a tyrant. So I think that that is something which really helps us deal with things like these. There are people within the Sikh community, and trust me, in our you know, journey with this obviously very small sample set that we've encountered doing Kul all around the world, we have had people who have stood up and said, Oh, we've been really mistreated by India or you know, the Indian government sort of lumping what laying what had happened to the Sikhs on a very large population. And I can tell you that there are enough people within the Sikh faith who will immediately point out that what had happened was can clearly be traced to a very specific set of individuals. And the fight for justice really needs to take that into account. Throughout their lives the gurus fought for justice but revenge has absolutely no place in the Sikh ethos. So the ability to forgive, the ability to relentlessly pursue justice without slipping into revenge and ultimately the strength that we derive from our faith, I think that those are some of the unique things that really help the Sikhs as they deal with 1984 and as they have dealt with several other instances over the past 200 years or so. It's definitely not easy. I will be the first to confess that for 32 years, the Sikh community has, in a certain sense, suffered from communal PTSD as a result of the events of 1984. And uh, you know, we, I think, are just now starting to confront this. During our journey with Gultar's mime, we discovered several instances of families where the parents directly suffered from, 19, from what happened in 1984 and who, in the subsequent years, have never had a single conversation with their adult children about what happened in 1984. We had families who stood up and talked about this in Toronto, in Ottawa, in India. It's just too painful to talk about, but people are starting to talk about it now. And I think that's only going to make us more resilient. Thank you, Ben. And um, now uh, from Um, My name is Waskito. I'm also part of the RPP um, colloquium. My question is pertaining to the actual play itself. Um, so how do the actual figures compare to the
5: characters, the actual figures in the play compared to the characters of the play? Um, how do their lives after the massacre um, and,
11: um, and their interaction with others compared to those characters in the play? Like, did you find anything different from what you portrayed in the play with the actual um, characters um, um, off the play? Right.
6: Sure, that's a great question. <clears throat> so we talked about Afthar or Kultar being the main character. And I think one of, uh, another sort of inspiration or lead into creating this for the stage was the simple fact that his means for communicating this event um, and his emotions in relationship to what he witnessed of his father uh, was mime, right? It was gesture and for me, uh, acting in theater is largely gesture. It's seeing different, it's seeing bodies on stage and seeing uh, it, them in relationship to each other and seeing what they convey through gesture. And so uh, the the relationship between the person of Thar and the character Kultar is uh is pretty one. Um, it's pretty close. Uh, Bilu, the little girl in the play who uh, watches her father burned alive, is based on a couple of different people from the report, uh, the Vina Das report about the children of Diluc Vihar. Uh, there is a boy in the play named Angad <coughs> who uh, gouges his eyes out. Uh, that's not a true story. That's uh, a character in the play, and it was the character in the poem, as well as Rano, uh, whose little bit you saw today, who's raped. Um, But these stories are all based on the very specific data from the reports that my dad used when he was first writing this poem and in creating the play that was taken into consideration. Um, I think the, the the relationships that you see in the play are really interesting because what you see of these children of Tilak Vihar is a very s- small snippet into their lives. It's a look into their PTSD. It's a look into what they do when they're reminded that this has happened to them. It's a look at uh, the people that they used to be. There's a really beautiful part in the beginning of in the writing um, where you get a little glimpse of like Gulzar and Bilu playing together, um, and you get. A, a sense of Angad as this boy who wants to grow up to be a macho man. Um, and then the rest of the play you see these as see them as these empty shells uh, who've gone through so much trauma and so much horror. So that's what you see of, of the children themselves. But the other the, the other really important relationship in the play is that between the actors who portray them and the characters themselves. So it's in a sense it's a play within a play. It has lots of layers to it. Um, And it's book-ended by those artists, those uh, actors, thinking about what it means to to experience something like this. Um, And then at the end, sort of reflecting on what they've learned through portraying these characters and what they've learned about how violence is happening to all people everywhere and how compassion can transcend those boundaries of race. Uh, and culture and location. Um, and I think maybe that's the most important relationship in the plays between those people who are understanding a community that's not their own and that are under, understanding common human experiences in a way that I think is very different than we might think about them in our daily lives, right? We think about what's happening to us. And and it's, it's also really kind of scary uh, to think about telling somebody else's story, right? That's like a really fine line of what's allowed. What, what am I allowed to share? Which experiences am I allowed to own? And I think that rather than like, I, it, it was kind of weird putting this together and thinking what if this, this is like appropriation of some sort? But I don't think it is. I think it's, it's, it sort of transcends that in a way. It's more about really understanding somebody else's strife and embracing it as your own in a way. Does that sort of answer your question? Cool.
1: Do <laughs> um, you have another question? I was for okay. Then I think we're ready to open this to questions uh, from those of you who are in the audience and would like to know more about this. Yes, Julia. Just identify yourself when you speak, of course, and then we'll pass it down to our friends from Bowling Green. <laughs>
11: So, it would be very nice if I could tell you that the resilience of Kultar or Avtar, who's a real person, uh, is the norm in Tilak Vihar. Unfortunately, it is not. So I, I referred to Dr. Uma Chakravarti, who wrote the foreword to the book and who is a very well-known academic from India, now retired. Um, I was talking to her uh, just before our second trip to (coughs) India, flushed with the success of Kultar's Mime and the tremendous (coughs) response that we had got. We'd done, I think, 30-odd performances by then. And I told her that we would like to visit Tilak Vihar and we didn't want to just show up there. We thought it would be best if we went with somebody who knew the families, who they trusted, who had, who, they, who had been working with them over the years. And as we were setting this up, Dr. Chakravarti, who's a very straightforward person, those of you who've interacted with her will know, said something to me that felt like a slap on my face. She said, You six have abandoned the survivors of Tilak Bihar. And, you know, flushed as we were with the success of our play, that stung even more than it would have. And when I went there, the visit was arranged by her, I understood exactly what she meant. Tilakvihar is one of the most miserable places that I've had the misfortune to visit. Uh, abject poverty, as you, you know, see in the cliched images of India often, it's as bad as the cliched images or worse. Uh, Dr. Chakravarti and several other activists who've been working with the survivors for 30 years informed me that the first generation was completely devastated by drugs and alcohol, where you had a whole group of families where no adult males had survived, all had been massacred. The mothers were largely illiterate, so their energies were consumed completely by trying to keep their families fed and alive. So the children ran wild, and a lot of them turned to drugs and alcohol. So Avtar's story, in that sense, is a minor miracle. The odds were completely stacked against him. I mean, who knows you know, what, what his mother did, what resilience he had, how he survived and thrived. It's just very difficult to understand. The third generation is now at risk because of poverty. The Sikh community Mm -hmm. did raise some money for the survivors, particularly in the days following the massacre. Some money was dispersed. But there really hasn't been a concerted effort to positively influence the lives of the survivors, except by a couple of very small NGOs. One is called Aman Biradri, and it's run by a gentleman called Harsh Mandir, who's doing tremendous work in Delhi. So there are a few organizations that are working for the survivors. But by and large, they've sort of managed to get by on their own. Some of them were given petty government jobs. Avtar's mother, for instance, got a job. And when she died, the job essentially went to Avtar. So some survived in that manner, but most of them are pretty much on their own. What can be done? Well. The good news is that what's needed in Tilak Bihar are very small things and some of them are happening, such as a community center, such as a library, such as vocational training for people so that they can go look for jobs. And it doesn't take large amounts of money. So there are a few organizations, most notably Aman Biradri, that are working there. They already have the infrastructure. They have the volunteers. So what we're trying to do is trying to inspire people to send funds to these organizations that are already working there that have the relationships and the trust of the survivors. And hopefully that will make a difference. But I have to tell you that the resilience and the uplift from Aftar's Kulta- from story notwithstanding, this is not a happy ending story by any means at this point in time.
5: Green State
4: University in Ohio. Um, A related question that I have uh, has to do with the kind of um, circumstantial changes that need to take place, the conditional changes that need to take place for a story to go from someone's story to anyone's story. Um, I'm going to guess that you you wouldn't have been able to stage this play in, in Delhi a year after the event, and probably maybe not even 10 years after the event. Uh, can you comment on the kinds of environmental changes that need to take place for uh, the transition to go from someone's story to anyone's story?
11: So that's a great question. I... It's easy to be naively optimistic when you want things to get to a good conclusion. So I'd like to say that the South African model of truth and reconciliation, which a lot of people are very cynical about, and I've experienced that as well, uh, perhaps is what needs to happen in that context. But putting it in very simple terms, I talked about forgiveness being a very important part of the Sikh ethos, and it is, it truly is, and I know that Sikhs believe that. Forgiveness is a really important step towards addressing our communal PTSD and moving on. One of the fundamental issues so far has been that there's been nobody to forgive. Because nobody got up and said, we did this and we're sorry. So that is one of the fundamental issues and that is the one thing that needs to change. If that were to change, Then, I think, the first steps towards healing and resolution could start happening. There have been rumblings. The fellow uh, to your right, Jagdish Tytler, was a sitting minister in the Indian government for decades after the massacre, and he was recognized and named in the report as one of the main perpetrators. There's a doughty lawyer in Delhi called Harvinder Singh Fulka, who has waged a single-handed battle for 30 years to get justice for the victims. And he and his team have come close to getting Jagdish Tytler indicted multiple times, but he's always escaped. When I sat down with Mr. Fulka after our last show in India, which he helped co-organize, we were talking about how the perpetrators were going to get away. I was talking about how the perpetrators are going to get away scot-free because H.K.L. Bhagat, the fellow in the dark glasses, who was also a minister, died a natural death. And Fulka told me in our conversation that don't assume that just because he died a natural death, he was not plagued by what he had done. What has happened is very much part of the mainstream narrative. There has been political change in India. Without getting lost in the weeds of Indian politics, uh, the Indira Gandhi's political party Congress ruled India for the bulk of the 32 years after these incidents. Around three years ago, there was a turnover in the central government. And the right-wing party, the BJP, took over, which is no friend of the Congress. Now, the BJP taking over is, unfortunately, little cause for optimism because the BJP has its own similar skeletons, most notably the massacre of the Muslims in Go- after the Godhra incident in 2002, which continues to be unaddressed. So the uncomfortable fact of the matter is that on the heels of a conversation about 1984 comes a conversation about Godra, which is not something they're willing to engage in. So to answer your question specifically, significant political change where you have people at the helm who don't have a vested interest in glossing over what happened is a second important condition towards any meaningful change. I am not cynical. Things have changed. You're exactly right. Even 10 years ago, we could not have staged Kulthar's mime in Delhi. The fact that we did, the fact that we were written up in every major newspaper in the, in the country, the fact that a 16-year-old who attended our show in Bombay went and wrote in her blog, I never knew something like this could happen to people in my country. She's not a Sikh. I am really angry that something like this happened. I don't want something like this to ever happen to anyone in my country. It's shameful that should give us hope because she's not alone. We certainly found hundreds of people like that when we went to India. So bringing these things back into the overall consciousness, creating awareness, I think that would be the third significant agent of change.
1: Yes.
5: (coughs) Hello.
9: I'm interested in, uh, oh sorry, Rahul Deep Gill from California Lutheran University. Um, No,
11: you're from Boston. What do you mean you're from California?
9: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's a homecoming. Um, The the play is a lot about bodies and it's very visceral in the scene that we saw. Um, What happens to the actors' bodies and your bodies as you watch the actors, having been the creator of this Um, and your PTSD and your separation, right? Because both of you have deeply uh, different relationships with the times, Um, but the memories are there even if you didn't live through them, right? So what is happening in your bodies? Take us through the story over the last few years as to how some of those things change. So I'll talk talk to it briefly and then I'll hand it to Meher because she is much closer
11: to the actors and their perspective and that's a great question Rahul so I'll just say this uh, you know I wrote most of the lines that are in the play I'm obviously intimately familiar with them this is not shocking new stuff to me but I can tell you that I have attended all the 71 performances of the play in the last couple of years and I, cannot, I still cannot watch it without feeling emotional at some point in the play or other. So it is difficult material to engage with, no matter you know, where you are, who you are in the engagement process. Uh, I can only imagine how audiences feel the first time that they see the entire play because you know, I, I feel it myself. Um, I'll, I'll let Meher talk to the experience of the actors because um, you know, their responses have been very interesting.
6: Yeah, again, so my entry point <coughs> to the project is definitely through working with the actors, listening to their questions, um, and exploring what this story looks like on, on its feet physically. So one of the really interesting things uh, on it, sort of with the theme of universality of the story and and how it sort of transcends specific people in specific places is that People often respond to violence in very similar ways in their bodies So when we see those gestures happening on stage of somebody is being attacked How do they react to that that's not because they don't react that way because they're six from India They react that way because that's how humans like defend themselves when someone's coming for them so one of the things that we Used to explore the story and stage it, um, is repetition and mime. Um, every character, when we were staging it for the first time, I had them look at this character's story, um, the very specific experiences that they had with their families in the aftermath, what happened to their families, and create four very specific gestures in response to that. Um, And we would repeat those gestures over and over and over again to sort of explore what feelings that brings up for you. Um, And as we did that, those gestures, just like very simple body movements, bubbled up into really specific responses to really specific stimuli in the play. And it's interesting because Uh, This is like a a psychology thing. A lot of times, like smiling can make you happier. A physical gesture can lead to a really specific emotion in response to having your body in that particular place. Um, And so using the actors uh, for gestures for their stories and repeating them and seeing what those movements brought up for them emotionally and what that added to their story really informed what this play looks like on its feet. So, so much of the physical theater that you see in the play is each actor's response to the, the story that the, of the character that they're portraying. Um, and I know for a fact from talking to them and, and from their responses in every single talk back that this play is really hard for them to do. These, these are actors that they're you know they're they're young professionals. They do Shakespeare. They do new new work. They do lots of different kinds of stuff. Um, and one really important thing about being an actor is is being able to sort of transport yourself into a story and then transport yourself out of it and live your life as a human and whoever you are. But when you're when you're doing work that is so visceral and so horrifying um, and playing someone that has trauma, it's really hard to leave it behind. Um, And so something that we talked a lot about is how do we understand how to separate ourselves from the trauma that these people are feeling. But in addition to that, they gained a really, really important understanding of what it might mean, even a little bit, to have experienced this kind of trauma.
11: Perspective that they say over and over again, while acknowledging that it's a tremendously difficult thing to do, each one of them, without exception, points to the tremendous amount of personal growth that they've experienced in telling the story and, most importantly, engaging with audiences in talkbacks. Remember, this is not ancient history, this just happened 30 years ago. So, in every audience, they invariably are confronted with survivors and that makes it even more powerful for them.
1: I want to bring this back for a moment to the practice of peace, because um, you know, there, there are a lot that one can garner from this. Um, you know, David, I look forward to a few reflections from you eventually, but um, the idea that this is a cast of people who are for the most part, Euro, oh, maybe a few African Americans who are stepping into these shoes of Tilak Vihar, uh, children actually in Tilak Vihar. Um, how different would it be if they were all South Asian kids doing this or Sikhs themselves? But the power, I think, of having people who are of a different time and group uh, take these roles i think is, is extremely interesting i mean there are people and i remember that after this performance who would say well what kind of appropriation is this that you have these uh, you know white kids um, uh, portraying the uh, you know the, the people who suffered in the sick community so that's i think that's one something we need to hold on to and say What is the practice of peace when what one is doing deliberately is sort of stepping into someone else's shoes? I think we realize how how powerful that is. Many of you in this room will have seen the extraordinary performance at the American Repertory Theatre over the last couple of weeks of Anna Devere Smith um, uh, called Notes from the Field, in which she, in her inimitable way, uh, takes the character of about 10 or 15 different people in the school to prison pipeline of uh, black kids who have been arrested for the first time uh, rather than sent to the principal's office in, uh, in their school and uh, end up in prison or uh, school principals or prisoners who have you know, done something in the street and are in prison or those who have been beaten and killed, uh, and witnessed the beatings and kill, uh, killings of uh, young black men in the streets of America. So that uh, ability of this woman, uh, whose uh, poster we see outside, to take these roles in a drama that then has been one of the most powerful things that many people have seen in the ART for a long time. So you know, the power of drama and the power of stepping into the shoes of another, I think this, this has some lessons we might uh, want to reflect on in this context. Uh, let me again turn to folks who are here and might wish to add a reflection. Yes.
10: Uh, my name is Cindy Singer, I'm a local lawyer. Um, when I was in India, they told us about the Hindus. And they told us about the caste system. They never mentioned the Sikhs.
1: Here in the US. They in that sentence? Excuse me? Who is they in that sentence? Um,
10: the people who, the tour
1: guides or whoever yeah. was giving us information. <laughs> Just want to check. <laughs> oh, OK. <laughs>
10: um, and of course, in US, we've heard, since 9-11, we've heard all about the Muslims and wrong information that they're all members of ISIS and stuff. And we've heard about violence against you know African-Americans. We really haven't heard a lot about Sikhs. Um, We haven't heard hatred of them, we just haven't heard about them. So I'm wondering, and I guess, you know, religion 101. Are you an ethnic group? Are you a religion? Are you part of, an? are you a sect of another religion? I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about who you are, who Sikhs are.
11: Here we go. (laughs) So Sikhism is, uh the, probably the world's one of the world's youngest major religions. We've been around for about 500 years, roughly. Uh, we are a fairly large faith group. According to various estimates, there are between 28 to 30 million Sikhs in the world. So we're not a minuscule minority. Um, we might be a minuscule minority in the U.S. for sure, but. Uh, uh, we are a very small minority in india percentage wise because after all when you have a denominator of a billion you know <laughs> 20 million isn't a lot but we are a sizable religious group it's a distinct religion with uh, very well defined institutions uh, uh, it was founded uh, uh, in the 16th century uh, sorry in the 15th century by guru nanak who was our first guru He was followed by nine other uh, teachers who led the faith until the early 18th century when the 10th one passed. And then spiritual authority was conferred upon the Sikh scripture. So it's a distinct religion and is very much recognized and accepted as a distinct religion. Uh, The history of the Sikhs in the US is roughly 140 years old, actually. The first six came to the US in the late 1800s, mostly from the Far East. They were former employees of um, uh, the British Armed Forces who came to the US, Canada for economic opportunities and then the community was very small for about five decades or so, as Dr. Eck mentioned in her introductory remarks. The 19, late 50s to 60s is when the community started growing dramatically. So we've been around in this country for about 140 years, roughly. And I think we number, uh, I, I'm, I'm not on firm ground here, but I've heard estimates that range from you know, 750,000 to a million in the US is roughly our population.
1: There's another question of how we didn't hear very much about the Sikhs. Those of us who have been involved in this kind of work heard a lot about the Sikh community from the immediate aftermath of 9-11 when Balbir Singh Sodhi was killed. And then that sort of followed on quite a number of times. But I do think that it is largely over the course of uh, some sort of uh, major event like this, and the Oak Creek uh, shootings were another. In which there was a sort of wake up. Well, who, what? A, Sikh, a Sikh temple in Milwaukee. I had never heard of such a thing. So then there were a lot of um, sort of inquiries and and uh, teach-ins and that sort of thing. I think the other thing that we have been interested in in the, this term that Valerie Cor used again and again, Jan, Jandikala, Jandikala. Relentless forgiveness, is that Jardikala? Relentless uh, Relentless high spirits. High spirits, okay. Well, and there is a kind of relentless high spirits. One of the things that is extraordinary about the Sikh community worldwide (laughs) is the uh, hospitality that they offer to everyone, uh, to the whole community, uh, through this uh, communal meal called langar. Uh, And if you go to one of the uh, three or four uh, Sikh communities in the Boston area, uh, on Sundays, when they tend to have their gathering, you have to be prepared to eat, because they have these, and we saw in Valerie Kaur's uh, film, that we saw the kitchen at uh, the Sikh temple in, uh, in Oak Creek, which is a huge industrial sized kitchen in which they have pots this big, and you know, this is just part of what it means to uh, create hospitality for the whole community. And uh, several of us, when Dorothy and I were at, in Barcelona for a big sort of world religions parliament thing, the six came from England, they set up tents along the beach and they served lunch for 3,000 people every day. So th- this is no minor bit of hospitality, is really extraordinary. Um, but I think the other thing that one might want to steer into here is the question uh, in, in the US of what it means to be a victim. Because I think that there is certainly a sense of agency in the Sikh community that, is not, uh, that does not sort of cherish uh, the, the incidents of victimhood. And that must come from somewhere in uh, very deep in the faith itself. Um, the Sikhs, uh, in my own observation in the US, have been really at the forefront of standing up for justice, uh, invoking civil rights. Uh, and the sort of things that Harpreet Singh was talking about earlier today. Okay, I think we have time for a few more questions, and I'll turn to the back of the room if you'll identify yourself and someone will run over and give you the mic. Thank you.
8: Hi, uh, my name's Alia. Um, I hope you bear with me with the question. I've been trying to formulate it. It's something I've been sitting with for a long time, and now you're the beneficiary of this contemplation about art and trauma. So uh, the word power was used a lot, like this has a lot of power, and it did have a lot of power, but my own experience of it was the feeling of trauma, and it was so well communicated that I will say myself watching it, I felt almost like it, uh, traumatized. Or, or, put it into a trauma state, let's say, and there are people who may fall along a spectrum who have different uh, levels of susceptibility to that. I don't, I don't know, and you might know. That's one question. If you found that some people are um, have the different levels of responses they have, but getting to the question, in creating art, that um, the power is obviously, I think, in empathizing with, as someone said, I think the other, but is it, uh, also can it be empowering, like physically and experientially, and have you thought about actually um, working with the same art form that you use here to convey that experience of trauma, to convey that experience of empowerment for those in the audience, whether they be you know, I don't know, um, Jewish or Sikh or any religion who have experienced similar trauma or even um, as practices that could be used in places um, where uh, ethnic cleansing has taken place. Because if you can create the feeling of trauma in you, you can also create the feeling of powerfulness. So I'm just curious if, if you have anything on your plate like that because you're so good at creating that feeling. I was like curious about what you think, how they fit together.
6: Yeah, sure. It's kind of hard to watch the play out of context because it's really the the end of the play is really important, um, <laughs> and and it really is about moving forward and and rem- remembrance, um, and another another really important thing. And I apologize if this wasn't part of what we did today, but the beginning of the play, um, one of the actors speaks to every single audience member in small groups and uh, conveys a content warning. Um, because a lot of the play is, is really traumatic and can be really triggering for people, um, <clears throat> so that's something that happens. It's it's uh, you know it's like just so you know this play has some rough material in it. Here's what you might witness today, um, and so part of creating that experience of shock um, is really just like laying the facts out for people because, again, this is an event that lots of people just don't know about. And it's really important to not shy away from explaining what happened um, and not diminishing it in any way. And so I feel like uh, showing this piece, which is difficult to watch and has difficult material in it, is really important. Um, And I wouldn't do it in a way that glossed over that really important fact. But you say also that it's, it's as you can create those feelings of trauma and shock um, and despair in people, um, you can also use that same sort of energy to create change and uh, positive change. And so one of the things that we talk about in Talkbacks a lot is um, <clears throat> how we hope that this iteration of the story will inspire people, whatever they're feeling, to like, write it down. Or create something of their own, um, because I think that using art specifically and theater um, to create awareness for stuff like this is can be really can really be charged through a movement of sorts, um, because you do feel something really specific after watching this, and if you sort of channel that into something productive and something that you can share again, rather than just like being angry. Um, which can stem into violence afterwards. Um, I think that's really important, is like using whatever you're feeling to push it forward and share. Um, but also, uh, in a slightly different vein, using theater as a medium to create feelings of empowerment um, is something that people do a lot, actually. There are tons of workshops, um, Augusto Boal is, is really great guy who created a method and a model for sharing theater um, with communities that are trying to work through specific issues. Um, So uh, there's a particular method he uses called forum theater um, where he and a group of people will sort of spell out the problem and act it out and then they'll stop in the middle and be like, okay, what can happen next to fix this problem? Somebody else jump in and let's do the story a different way and see what another outcome can be. Um, so we, when we were in Malaysia, we uh, worked with the children there, who many of whom were in the audience, which was really interesting because they were pretty young to see them uh, digesting this information too. But I did a couple of theater workshops with uh, kids, with adults, where we did, I mean it was really basic, but we did storytelling, and we did creating short theater pieces and putting them on their feet, and to see the delight on these people's faces and to see like, wow, we told, that they, they were stories that came from them. They told each other stories and then they made plays out of them. And seeing the empowerment um, come from watching each other tell stories that are your very own um, and sharing them with an audience. And I think that sharing something that feels a little bit risky um, and having people accept it is really empowering too. So I think that uh, it's a great idea to keep using theater as a tool for empowerment. And I think that going forward, it might be great to continue uh, inserting a theater workshop as well as a talk back into the work we do with Clothar's mind.
1: I think we have time for at least one more question and then I will ask Dean Hampton if he has any reflections on this. Um, from the standpoint of RPP. Yes, Kwaja.
5: Hi, my name is Akbar Khawaja. Oh, thank you. My name is Akbar Kawaja, and I'm a graduate of Harvard Kennedy School. Um, And this religion, practice of peace, and uh, pluralism project is actually part of my future goals. I wanted to um, thank you very much for the play and for introducing. Uh, I know a lot more about the Sikh community now than I ever did before, so I appreciate that. Practice of peace. It, the question keeps coming to my mind, peace for who? For us, or for the people who have suffered. Um, something that you ex- explained, the event of uh, 1984, um, the communal PTSD that's been going around, um, what well, that happened and the result of it was drugs and a few other uh, uh, stats, uh, outcomes that came out of it for the sick community. There is something similar that has happened here in the USA with the First Nation, the sovereign nations. Um, and they have faced similar outcomes with drugs and other difficulties in the society. It is definitely perhaps for their recognition of what they've gone through or recognition of the sovereignty of what they have played. But what I'm curious about is um, how long does it take to attain that peace for the people or for the community I understand that the play plays um, that you're presenting the and uh, the book plays an important role, but how long will it take for the individuals who've suffered or the community to attain that peace? I see the same thing when there's a gentleman in the uh, in the clip uh, was going through the same thing. It, he f- felt the victimness in him, but he was trying to forbear and forgive, but it was hard for him. So the question keeps coming to my mind, peace for who and how for, when does it, to come to the community.
11: Well, those are great observations and that's a very tough question to answer. I think uh, nobody has the answer to that question. I would just go back to one of the earlier questions that was asked uh, about what are the conditions that need to be in place for any progress to be made. And, you know, you can, you can keep promoting But I think that uh, just the very act of acknowledgement, just the very act of addressing what had happened, definitely allows you to make some incremental incremental steps forward. So in an ideal world, you you would have uh, an acceptance of responsibility that would be followed by forgiveness, and everybody would move on. maybe someday all of that will happen until it happens i would argue that all the small steps that are taken to provide a bit of relief such as the 55 year old man finally feeling comfortable telling his 22 year old son that when i was a young man in delhi my house was burnt to the ground and this is a true story one of our the band told her terrible, terrible story. It wasn't a story with a good ending. It wasn't uplifting at all. What he said was that we were safe. The custodian of the local griguara, which was under attack came to our house and banged on our gate. And we didn't open the gate to let him in. Because if we had let him in, all of us would have been killed. Well, subsequently, the man who banged on their gate was killed. Can you imagine the amount of courage it took for this person to stand up and, and tell the story in an audience of 300 people? Amplify that a hundred times, a thousand times. I think that just the very act of bringing something like this out in the open and giving people. sound like a very tiny incremental step forward, but a step forward it is. And unfortunately, that's the best that I can offer mm-hmm. in the context of
1: what we're trying to do. Thank you. And I think uh, I just want all of us to remember that the beginning of this, of course, is a bunch of Jewish artists uh, in their sort of thinking and relating this to a poem about a pogrom in Russia in 1903. I mean, It's an attempt to make this a larger story that we are able to step into and imagine, because uh, all of us are really in this story. David, uh, thank you so much for the sort of forum in which this can be uh, dramatized tonight. Thank you so much, and I'll give the mic to you.
0: Thanks so much for a, a very uh, powerful uh, evening. Just two very quick reflections and then a few announcements about the future. And um, the first really has to do with a theme that was uh, introduced by v- Valerie uh, in her video and then uh, Sapreet in his uh, remarks. And that is um, the notion of forgiveness, which is obviously a very powerful idea. But um, uh, who to forgive, and are the perpetrators sorry? Um, And if they are, do they ever say it? Um, I was reminded just of of a couple of examples from the Irish Troubles, one on either side of the divide. One was the. um, there was a bombing in a, in, in a Skilling, uh, a, a border town, where uh, twelve people were killed, and um, one young woman was died in the bomb. Uh, and, uh, she was a nurse, and her father actually was in the bombing also, and was holding her hand when she died. It's a very powerful moment, and um, he was a Methodist shopkeeper from the town, and. Um, A couple of days afterwards, he he made a recovery. She obviously did not. And and he said he forgave those who did this. Um, um, And it was a very powerful moment. Um, He later got elected to the Irish Senate and became a very important figure in the peace movement. But lots of people within the Protestant community disowned the forgiveness. Uh, Who was he to forgive on our behalf, this group who had not sought forgiveness? And then on the other side of this dispute, uh, and I'm reminded of this uh, by the recent death of um, uh, uh, Father Edward Daly, that iconic photograph of uh, Bloody Sunday in Derry, the priest waving the white handkerchief, carrying this dead um, um, uh, uh, young man who had been shot by the British Army and um, uh, was unarmed. Um, And Bloody Sunday also reminds me of how hard it is for states, like the Indian state or like the British state, ever to admit that something bad happened. Um, And it takes a long time. Um, uh, Bloody Sunday went through many different tribunals. And only 30 years later did the British government really come out and say this was an egregious um, uh, uh, act, and that those who died that day were unarmed. Um, So uh, that's tricky, Um, uh, you know, forgiveness, admission. It's a very powerful thing when it happens because, uh, you know, the families who suffered in the Bloody Sunday um, uh, killings really wanted justice. They wanted someone to say uh, that something bad happened that day and that their loved ones were not armed. Uh, when this happens similar to the um, uh, 1984 uh, someone in authority to say um, The truth if you like So that's one reflection the other I think really and this has been a theme of our RPP over the last couple of years and it's beautifully illustrated tonight. It's just the importance of the arts of um, theater and rituals and um, uh, the Imam and the Pastor who came here use art and song and ritual in a powerful way to to bring healing to their communities in Nigeria. Um, it's a very um, a- a- important part of your story. Um, I can certainly remember. And one thing that's been going through my mind this year is it's a, um, uh, there are a lot of First World War remembrances back in uh, uh, Ireland, and 1916 was a date of one of the bloodiest battles ever in world history. Um, Over a a million casualties, can you? Over a million casualties died in the Battle of the Somme. Over literally a a mile of territory gained and lost in in northern France. And I certainly remember as a young uh, student in high school, Reading these uh, First World War poets about these, you know, trench battles. You know, Siegfried Sassoon, Rupert Brooke, uh, uh, William Butler Yeats a bit in Ireland, and poetry, theatre, song, ritual, and um, are ways I think of confronting the truth, in in ways that are particularly powerful. I think we felt it, saw it. Uh, In the bodies that were um, uh, uh, acting, but more than acting, uh, uh, drawing us into an experience. So, um, how to think better about religion and the art? Because you know the the history of this, as you very well know, is that religious communities sometimes are very suspicious of the art. It's certainly. True in the tradition. I know quite a bit about the evangelical tradition for 200 years. was deeply suspicious of theater and, and all of that. But the power of it is, 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 is substantial. So those are a couple of reflections. So just to wrap up, um, we do have a reception with refreshments in the lobby until 9. So do come and eat and drink and make connections and um, our next RPP colloquium is a very special one um, as well on October 6th uh, will be our keynote session for our bicentennial year the session will favor will, will feature the Nobel Peace Laureate um, uh, Lima Gaboey um, who will share her insights with us on women as catalysts for local and global spiritually engaged movements for sustainable peace as many of you know, um, uh, Lima Gaboe led the women's interfaith mass action for peace in Liberia, in which Christian and Muslim women banded together and played a pivotal role in bringing the brutal civil war to a close there and ousting the dictator of Liberia. Um, um, it's, this is memorialized in the film Pray the Devil Back to Hell, which um, Abby Disney made, if you get a chance to look at that before then. It's a very powerful story. Um, so that's going to be a great conversation. Um, uh, so please come and, and, and join us. And if you haven't done so, be sure to sign up for the RPP mailing list through the RPP website to receive announcements of this and other coming events. We're really keen to keep building our, our um, audiences and our commitments uh, as we go through the third year of our initiative. So it just remains for me to thank once again um uh, uh, uh my colleague Anna Eck and the Pluralism project. Uh, special thanks to uh, Sabrit Singh and um uh, Mayor Core um uh, and the uh, uh actors who performed for us, uh, Benjamin Goodman, Sydney Grant, and Monica uh Giordano, uh, for really a powerful evening. Thank you so much and 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 all of you for joining us in this enriching and inspiring session so thank you and come and join us for some refreshments